Hello, everyone. Welcome to the webinar. I am Rick Thomas, and the topic that I'm bringing to you in this webinar is titled Transgenderism. The subtitle is I Think, Therefore I Am. The big idea in this webinar is transgenderism is part of a cultural and political avalanche in our country. This contagion coincides with social justice, identity politics, wokeness, intersectionality, racism, and more. In this webinar, I want to break down the salient elements of the trans issue while offering practical help to engage our culture from a biblical worldview, and I trust hope-filled solutions. One of the books that I've read about transgenderism, I believe, is currently the best, best book on the market today. It was written by Abigail Schreier, and the title of the book is Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Now, as far as I know, Abigail Schreier is not a believer, and some of the things that you will read in this book uh, you will not agree with, but as far as a, a deep in-depth study of transgenderism and this social contagion on our culture today, you will find this book quite beneficial, even though, again, you will not concur or come to all the conclusions that she does. And I will share many things that she puts forth in this book, Irreversible Damage. To give you a brief overview of the outline, I will not labor on these points now, but just so that you can see where we are going, I will run through the points and then I will uh, hit each one of them and hopefully take sufficient time to explain them. The outline is, number one, what is psychology? Number two, what is Gen Z? Number three, what is gender dysphoria? Number four, what is social contagion? Number five, what is misgendered? Number six, who are the influencers? Number seven, what is the condition? Number eight, what is affirmative care? Number nine, what is conversion therapy? And then finally, number 10, how are we to respond? This webinar is different from all the webinars that I've done in the past. This webinar is more informational. Our ministry is a practical ministry as we teach how to practically apply Scripture to real-life issues, problems, situational difficulties that we find ourselves. And so this one will be different, but I do believe it is essential that we have this information for uh, before us in a Christocentric, bibliocentric way. And so therefore, I am doing this, and I trust it will benefit you as well. As always, if you have any questions about this, a webinar, you're welcome to go to our ministry website, jump on our forums, and you may ask uh, your questions. If you're listening by audio, thank you so much for listening to the audio version of the webinar, but please know we have an animated, uh, fully presented uh, keynote presentation, and if you can get to the webinar, you're welcome to do that. I would appeal to you to do that at your leisure uh, so that you can actually see uh, what you're hearing now for those who are listening by audio. Again, the title of the webinar, Transgenderism, I Think, Therefore, I Am. There is a, a person, a, a girl, who goes by the name of Benji. She transgen, uh, transitioned rather, uh, from girl to boy and then detransitioned back to a girl, and she retained the boy name that she had, Benji. But she made this statement, and it's, it's an important quote. She said, 
postmodern queer theory believes experience is more important than fact. And it's important for us to remember this, and it's why I titled, or the subtitle of this webinar is, I Think, Therefore I Am. We are not talking about a biological problem. We are talking about an experience in Benji who transitioned from female to male and detransitioned from male back to her original and accurate gender of female. That's what she is saying as well. It's more about an experience than it is a fact. Now, that should not cause us or motivate us to be harsh or unkind to folks who are caught in this trap. We want to be gentle and courageous and competent as we uh, help people who are struggling with this idea, this feeling that they are in the wrong body. Point number one is psychology, and I wanted to start here because it's important for us to understand what this word means. Psychology is a biblical word. It means psyche logos, the study of the soul. Of course, everyone doesn't adhere to a biblical interpretation or definition of psychology, and therefore what we have in our culture are two Bibles. The culture's Bible is the DSM-5 what used to be the four, the three, the two, and the one. Their Bible continues to evolve as they create more and more disorders or as they redefine the human condition. And then, of course, there is God's Word, and these are the two competing Bibles, the Scriptures, God's Word, the Bible, and the DSM-5. And the reason this is important is because everyone doesn't come from the same point of departure. The DSM-5, as implied, is a moving target, and so their truth is always evolving, and what was true in the past is no longer true currently, and what's true currently might not be true in the future, and that's the way their truth goes. Our truth out of God's word is fixed. God spoke truth, and we understand truth, and there's no need to change it because it comes from God. As I said, the study of psychology is the study of the soul. That's what the word means. Psyche means soul, and of course, logos means the study of or the word concerning. In Genesis 2-7, we learn that God created man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils, and he became a living soul, a living, a living psyche. And then in 2 Timothy 3.16, God breathed again and gave us his word. Therefore, we have the word concerning the soul. The most accurate psychology book there is, is the Bible. It is the study of the soul, and that is the worldview from which I come from. Transgenderism, by the way, uh, in the DSM-5 is on the way out, much like, psych uh, much like homosexuality uh, went away uh, in the 1970s when it uh, went from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5. There was a time when homosexuality was a deviant behavior, but now it's an accepted behavior, and those who oppose it, they have the new disorder, which is called homophobia, and that's how they're they're truth continues to uh, change. Transgenderism will not be a problem, according to the DSM, uh, but they will have a problem, a disorder 
for all of those who are against it. And that's just the way psychology happens in the culture, and it's unfortunate, but it is the world in which we live. Point number two is Gen Z. Gen Z is also called the iGen uh, culture. A social psychologist came up with the term iGen, and iGen and Gen Z mean the same thing. And what it is is that it is a time frame between about 1995 to 2010. These are children who were born in the Internet age. They are affected by cyberspace, Internet, devices, and social media. They don't know anything outside of social media and the internet. Uh, They are born inside that generation. Thus, you could say Gen Z, which is the popular title, but iGen also accurately uh, identifies this group. For those who are older, born before 1995, like I was, uh, well, I know a generation and I know a culture and I know a country that uh, was not affected by the computer age the way it is now. But because these kids live inside the cube, uh, the computer age, that is their only experience. And it's important for us to understand that. It would be easy for us to have chronological snobbery as we map our experience or our childhood over these kids, well, they will not be able to relate to us because they do not have our experience. Therefore, we must understand their experience in order to help them. And part of their experience is their primary mentors are social media. That is where they hang out most of the time, generally speaking. In fact, many of these kids have a hard time living in the real world. Now, this is not unusual. Some of you may have had this experience before the Gen Z generation uh, that you also uh, sought for escapes as you had a hard time living in and adapting to this world. I was most definitely like that. When I was a child, because of our familial dysfunction and the abusiveness specifically of my father, I, I sought to escape from this world, but I did it through the television. The television was my portal that allowed me to escape, at least in my own mind, my own experience, and I watched uh, television obsessively. Well, children don't have to do that now. They have other options and uh, social media devices. I mean, the device in their pocket, that little piece of glass, that rectangular piece of glass in their pocket allows them to escape quickly when they are having a hard time living in the real world. And what you will find oftentimes is there there is familial dysfunction going on. There's relational conflict within their sphere of influence, specifically within their family. And because they have that rectangular glass in their back pocket, all they have to do is pull it out, go sit in a corner, isolate in their room, and they are immediately at the touch of a button in, in cyberspace. Now, one of the issues with the Gen Z culture is that you can't study it. It's like any phenomenon that is happening in real time. 
we will only be able to study this Gen Z culture once we have distanced ourselves from it. 20 years from now, 50 years from now, we can look back on it and we can draw objective data and we can see what we have done to ourselves. Uh, perhaps uh, you would recall uh, 9-11 that as 9-11 was happening, you know, uh, the years uh, after 9-11, a few years after it, it was still hard to study because we were still reeling from the effects of it. But now we are multiple decades past 9-11, and we can look back with more objective data, and we can see, you know, what what went wrong and what we should have done, what we could have uh, done better because that event is closed now, and there are many years that have passed and that's the way that you study phenomena, is that you get past it. But unfortunately, we are living inside of it. And even though our data is not as accurate as it can be, we still need to think about our Gen Z or iGen culture because it is, without question, it is affecting our children. And the way that it is affecting them is well, to put it in a word, is dysphoria. You have heard of this word, and the question is, what does this word mean? Well, the word dysphoria basically means dysfunction or it means confusion. You can think of confusion as a good, accurate a definition, one-word definition of dysphoria, but we can do better than that. If you run dysphoria through a bibliocentric filter, uh, what you will find is that this is not, a, this is not something that's new. In fact, this is something that is so old, it goes back to Genesis 3-6, where dysphoria began, or confusion began, or dysfunction began. What I call dysphoria, and, and to give it a biblical definition, you could say something like this, it's an internal awkwardness. Uh, internal awkward, awkwardness, let me see if I can say it clearly, an internal awkwardness of the soul. Or even more specifically, to give it a tighter definition, it is the Adamic problem, the age-old problem that Adam had after he chose to unbelieve in the Garden of Eden with Eve. I'm talking about shame and guilt and discontentment, being emotionally uncomfortable, as I said, internal awkwardness of the soul. This is what dysphoria is. It's a new word, but it's an old problem, and we all have experienced it. Many of us are experiencing it now. And when you feel a dysfunction of the soul, a confusion internally, an internal awkwardness, we're going to look for mentors. We're going to look for solutions. We may even look for escapes. And that is the problem that we have now. You have an Adamic problem, but you have a modern way of escaping or looking for solutions through the Internet, cyberspace, social media, and of course, when you go out there, it's only going to exacerbate or intensify the dysfunction or the dysphoria that we have. Now, one of the interesting things that's going on with the trans community is that it, is typic it typically happens uh, to girls who are transitioning from girls to boys, uh, from women to men. And the specific age group and the demographic is white, teenage, middle-class girls who are entering into high school. Now, I'm not suggesting that other people do not experience this dysphoria, this internal confusion of the soul, but primarily 
to the largest extent, it is girls who are white, who are middle class, teenage, and entering into high school. That is the largest social contagion that we have today. Again, 35-year-old people and 40-year-old people can experience this as well, but predominantly it is a contagion or I call a social or peer contagion. It is happening within a specific demographic. Let me give you an illustration of this, and this is one that Abigail Schreier gave in her book, Irreversible Damage. In 1994, hardly anyone in Hong Kong had heard of the word anorexia, and then it was published about a person who was struggling with anorexia, and then it became popularized. And as it was becoming popularized, it became a social contagion, and then many people were struggling with anorexia. That is not a biological problem. That is a social or peer contagion. There are studies also when documentaries or when a famous person like Robin Williams commits suicide, all of a sudden there is a peer or social contagion. Again, it's not a biological problem. As for this uh, problem with transgenderism, since 2011, there has been a spike among teenage girls who believe that they were born in the wrong body. And you can go back to a point in time when this all began, and that time was 2007. In 2007, we received the iPhone. Phones were already here, but the iPhone was a different animal altogether. And then shortly after 2007 came social media platforms that were popularized and they were rampant. Everybody was creating apps and social media platforms. And because of that, we were connected in a way that we had never been connected before. Much of that was positive, but there was a backside liability that no one really anticipated, and that is that there are social uh, evangelists out there who are eagerly and aggressively trying to indoctrinate people uh, into their belief system, and one of those belief systems is transgenderism. Therefore, when you have, let's say, an insecure girl with familial dysfunction, and she goes on social media as a way to escape, and then someone begins to indoctrinate her about why she's experiencing this internal awkwardness where their solution is that, well, maybe you were born in the wrong body, and then the conversation continues. Therefore, since 2011, there has been that spike among teen girls who believe they were born in the wrong body, and by 2016 and 17, teen girls asking for top surgery quadrupled. Top surgery is a surgery where you have your breast removed. Now, one of the reasons that we know that this is a peer contagion or a social contagion is because the older population doesn't fall for these contagions. When there is a real biological issue, like, say, a virus, a pandemic, it is no respecter of persons. Uh, it will find all the vulnerable people, uh, whether they're 88 years old or 8 years old. If you have the vulnerability, then there's a possibility that you will not only get sick, but you will die. A virus does not select a specific peer group, but it will attack and uh, 
uh, every demographic. And again, that's just not what is happening with the transgender issue. Now, because of that, there is actually hope. There's no biodeterminism here, meaning I, I got this genetic problem. There's no gay gene and there's no trans gene. And if there were, perhaps you could say because of biodeterminism that you cannot change, but because this is a pure contagion, you actually can change. There is hope, and that is good news for folks that are struggling with this issue. It is nearly always teens who look to the culture for solutions, and because of social media, it is easy for these social conti- social contagions uh, to be to form uh, a pandemic as they roll like a wave and they wash up on the shores of our families and our churches. And the primary influencers are the gurus on social media. The culture tells them that they are correct. The culture tells them that what they are feeling, they tell them what they are feeling, and then they affirm it. And if a person is uncomfortable with internal awkwardness, then the culture affirms that. And of course, these kids receive praise from social media. It is a place of acceptance and approval and love and and respect. All of these are false, uh, but there's enough of of affirmation and a sense of reality to it that it is alluring and appealing. So they continue to go deeper into these uh, social media processes and methodologies and protocols, and they find the people who come along beside them. And one of the the interesting things that uh, that we really need to come to grips with as we are helping our teenagers to work through uh, how to find solutions to problems is that we have to understand that social media is uh, extremely popular and enticing to them, even more so uh, than any other medium. Uh, for example, if you talk to the average teenager about American history or, or current politics, they would not know much about that, but they would know they do know, and they're well informed of who's famous on social media. They're well informed about the music, the popular music of the day. In fact, you can test my thesis. Uh, you can ask a teen about a pop music icon, and they will tell you all about them. If you ask them about certain political views, for example, and I believe it was 2020 or 2019 when they moved the embassy uh, to Jerusalem, uh, they would not know anything about that. They can't discuss those things with you, generally speaking. There's been many interviews, or several interviews rather, where uh, someone had gone out and asked a teenager what socialism was, and they would say socialism means that you're being social. My point is, is that how we received our uh, education uh, in our generation is different to the way kids are being educated today. Oh, they're going to school, uh, but school is a mandatory environment that they have to participate in. But when it comes to where they select to be mentored and to be trained, it is in social media. And those are the primary influencers, and we need to understand this. And we not only need to be 
educating ourselves and our children about the dangers of social media, but we, we need to consider guarding the access points where kids can't so easily get into these uh, social media platforms where they are being indoctrinated. Uh, for example, with this new term that has come upon us of being misgendered. They're being educated, for example, misgendered means using the wrong pronouns to identify a person. And so a girl would no longer be identified as a she or her. It would be a he or a him. That is what misgendered means when you identify somebody by the, the wrong pronoun. But then there are other ways, too, of misgendering. There, there's a whole list of, of genders now. This webinar is about transgenderism, which is a male uh, becoming a, a female at least in their own minds, because you can't become a female if you are a male. You can only pretend that you are a female if you are a male. Or transgenderism is a female becoming a male, male to female or female to male. And then there is cisgender. Cisgender is a person who is in actuality a male or a female. I would be a cisgendered person. I am a, a male. I was born a male. I claim to be a male. That's what a cisgender is. And then there's a non-binary person who believes that they are neither male or female. And, and of course, it's uh, bi binary uh, means there's two. Uh, there's male and female. There's two fixed points is what binary means. And non-binary means that there aren't any fixed points, and I'm neither uh, male or female. And then there is gender fluid, uh, which means it changes from, from day to day. There is pangenderism, which means omni. Pan and omni are, are similar prefixes. If you're omniscient, you know everything. If you're omnipotent, you're all-powerful. If you're pangender, you can be any gender or be attracted to any gender. And then, of course, there is intersex. Now, intersex is different. Uh, it is not a feeling. It is a biological reality. And you would distinguish intersex from transgender or cisgender or non-binary or gender fluid or pan, pangender or, or odd gender, for example. Odd gender means uh, there aren't any genders. The A negates the word gender. But inter intersex is a person, is a male born with female parts or a female born uh, with uh, male parts. And then, as I said, there are many more genders, and this, this list grows uh, day by day. I'm not even sure how many genders there are, according to our social evangelists. For example, as I mentioned, odd gender uh, is a new one that some people claim to be. And so that's this idea of gender. And then what you really have to ask yourself is that what kind of condition is this? As I mentioned at the beginning of the webinar, Benji, who transitioned from female to male and then detransitioned from male to female, uh, Benji said that this is an experience. It is a feeling. And I agree with that. This is not a biological condition. It's just not. Uh, they can argue, they can rage, uh, they can shout you down, but it's not a biological condition. There is no gay gene. There's no trans gene. And that does bring great hope 
uh, because there is repentance for this internal awkwardness of the soul, this, uh, this old Adamic problem that has been repackaged uh, to a Gen Z culture. It's not biological. It is a faith issue, as the subtitle of this webinar uh, speaks to. I think, therefore, I am. It is something that I believe. Now, when I say a faith issue, I'm not talking about biblical faith at all. I'm not talking about trusting Christ. I'm talking about a belief system, a faith issue, uh, what I think I am. And that is the great news because there is a process of working through this because it's not biological. And what you will find is that many of these people are just miserable. They're miserable before they transition, which makes sense. Uh, we should be miserable uh, before we find Christ. Uh, being miserable is actually a good thing if your miserableness leads you to the proper solution, who is Jesus Christ. But what happens so often is they're not just miserable before they transition or start the transition process, but they're miserable afterward. And there are many testimonies of folks who realize that this did not bring me the utopia. This did not bring me the happiness that I thought it would. And this, that's one of the reasons, for example, why Benzi, Benji detransitioned because it's not what uh, she thought it would be. And so many of them do transition, detransition, realizing that they have made a mistake. One of the allurements of uh, being transgender is that it pushes you to, to, to the top of the intersectional pyramid of acceptance. Intersectionality is a, or the intersectional pyramid, uh, it is a way of grouping uh, different individuals according to a category. And if you're in one of the minority classes, like being gay or transgendered or black or uh, having some handicap of some sort, uh, and the more of those minority categories that you have, the higher you go up on the intersectional pyramid. And the higher you go up on the intersectional pyramid, the more applause and the more acceptance you have. Therefore, if you are, let's say, a, a black gay person, you would be higher up on the intersectional pyramid, and the culture, culture applauds that more than, let's say, being a white male. Now, we know in the, the 2020 presidential election, Joe Biden uh, specifically said that the reason that he uh, chose uh, Kamala Harris as the vice president because she was a woman and because she was black. And she was higher up on the intersectional pyramid, and he was pandering to the, the loudest voices in our culture today. And so he uh, made sure that he picked a person who was higher on the intersectional pyramid uh, because that received the greatest applause. And so if you have an insecure teenage girl who is looking for acceptance, one of the temptations is to climb the intersectional pyramid of acceptance. And so being a transgender is a, a definite way to climb that pyramid, but unfortunately, uh, it will not make these people happy. 
And so the, the insecure girl who comes out as trans, they will receive tons of acceptance from the culture. But as they pillow their heads uh, each night, and as they spend time alone processing their life and where they are and the decisions that they have made, they will find that this actually was not a solution at all. And so the big point under this uh, point of condition is, the title of this uh, subtitle here is, or or the uh, bullet point here rather, is condition. And the big point under condition is that it's not biological, it is a faith issue. Without objective truth, identity is a feeling. Quote, I feel like a man. The irony here or the sadness here is that after we're all dead dead, and forensics comes in to uh, see, to look at the bones that are remaining, there will be no question as to the gender of the person. It's easy to identify the gender of the person, and forensics tells us that because that is objective truth. But if you don't have objective truth, then your identity is a feeling. You can be anything that you want. And so, therefore, you go to the psychologist to receive care. You go to the psychologist to look for truth. And unfortunately, what is happening in psychology today is this idea of affirmative care. Affirmative care or affirmative therapy what it is, it starts with a conclusion, and it works backward to solve the problem. Now, what I mean by that is, is that the patient comes in, and the patient tells the doctor what the problem is, and the doctor cannot disagree with it. The doctor, the doctor cannot do any objective investigation. All the doctor does is affirm what the patient says. Now that doesn't that that has never happened in the history of humanity, and it should not happen. I mean, there's no point really in being a psychologist if your hands are tied and your sole role is to agree uh, with what the person tells you uh, without any discussion, without any investigation, without any objective data then there's really no point in a psychologist at all. There's no point in a doctor at all. The doctor has to uh, adhere to affirmative care. Uh, if the kid says, I don't like my gender, the affirmative care, thera- affirmative care therapist agrees and begins to map out a plan for change. Uh, this is what the doctor does. And quite honestly, uh, many of these people in the medical community or the uh, social psychological community, they are afraid to speak out against what the teen is saying. And also they are legislating this as well. And there is, we are in that point. It's not coming to a time. We are at that juncture in history uh, to where these therapists or these medical doctors are going to have to take a stand, even if it means losing licensure, uh, because they're taking a stand and they choose not to adhere to the doctrine of affirmative care. Affirmative therapy therapy for the gender-confused person and conversion therapy are very similar. Affirmative therapy is, again, affirming what the patient is telling you, and then conversion therapy is the person walking them through the problem, of course, they can't do that. 
And so affirmative therapy and conversion therapy are essentially the same. You have to agree with what the person is saying, and you can't uh, try to initiate any kind of change uh, that is different from what the person is telling you. Currently, as of this webinar, there are 19 states that make it illegal to help a person uh, to transition, uh, not to transition. If a person came to you, if a, if a child came to you and said they wanted to transition, uh, it would be illegal for you to not help them. And this is being heavily legislated and is continuing to grow and spread all across our country. In fact, gen gender identity education is mandatory in some states like California, and what they did is actually deceptive when they created the legislation for gender identity education. They did not put it in the uh, sex ed curriculum because you can opt out of sex ed teaching. Uh, you can say that I don't want my child to participate in sex ed teaching. So they didn't put it in that curriculum. They put it in the anti-bully curriculum, which you cannot opt out of. And so it's deceptive what they did. They put the legislation inside the anti-bully curriculum so that your kid, you cannot opt out of it. Therefore, they're being indoctrinated toward gender identity ideology and there's nothing that you can do about it if you keep your child in that educational system. If the parents resist this legislated education, there could be legal action against the parents to the point to where they would call that parental abuse if parents begin to teach any kind of um, if they go against affirmative therapy or if they put their child in a place for conversion therapy uh, to where they were helping the child to not transition, that could be a, a legal issue for the parents. Now, part of the good news that's going on in our culture, because this is such a, a rage talking point, and they're so aggressive in pushing this agenda that even liberal parents who do not adhere to the Bible, they do not love Christ, even liberal parents struggle with what is happening to their children, specifically their girls, because that is the pure contagion, even though boys do, there are a few boys that want to transition uh, from boys to girls. Well, there are liberal parents who are truly struggling with this, and that is good news for us, Christians. Uh, Christian parents because we want that number to continue to grow so that those who are against the things that I'm communicating here as far as transgenderism, affirmative care, conversion therapy, we want that number to grow for those who are speaking out against it. And that does bring us to the place of the webinar where we, we have to think through our own response. How are we going to uh, respond to this, these issues uh, that I've been putting forth uh, in uh, this webinar, the nine points that I've just gone through. And so as I wrap up this webinar, I do want to ask you some questions, and I really want you to, to think about it. Uh, I, I want you to process this. It would be good if you spent some time, uh, if you're married, talking about this with your spouse. Uh, if you have a, a children, uh, depending on where they are, 
mature-wise, uh, their affection for Christ, their knowledge of the Bible. Uh, you want to gauge where the starting point would be in having these conversations with your family. Now, perhaps you uh, have a spouse that is not willing to interact with you with these types of conversations, or your children are not in a place to where you can uh, uh, interact with them and have conversations with them. I would appeal to you to find a friend, uh, to find someone uh, in your local community that you can talk about these things. Uh, maybe you, you, maybe all you have is our forums. I don't mean that as a negative, uh, but maybe our forums would be an option for you to come and talk about these things, and we would love to engage you. But here's the first question that I have for you. What is the status of your marriage? and your family. I mean, would you make an honest assessment of, of if you are married, where you are in your marriage? What is the maturity of your marriage? How are you two growing in Christ and, and communicating? You have to be together on this. And we, do, we have received uh, several questions uh, from folks who have come to our community to where the husbands and the wives are in two different places. Uh, we received a, a question recently where uh, one spouse uh, believed that it was okay to uh, call a female by a male pronoun, and the other spouse was not okay with it, and they're trying to work through that. But when I'm asking the question here, what is the status of your marriage and family, I am also asking about familial dysfunction, marriage dysfunction. You see, we should be providing an environment of grace for our our children. Uh, we should be providing a safe structure, a context for our children to grow and to flourish. And if parents aren't getting along, if the home is, is characterized by argumentation and hostility, uh, where there is not this uh, Christocentric community, then it exacerbates of the internal awkwardness, the internal insecurity that these children have. Remember that your children are born in Adam like you, like me. We're born in Adam, so we're born with dysphoria, if you want to use this modern term. But we're, we're, we're born with, with these traces of shame and guilt and fear and frustration and these temptations. This is how we come into the world. And when parents don't get along and when the family is dysfunctional, it compounds uh, this internal problem, Adamic problem that we have. And so when I ask what is the status of your marriage and family, that is really what I'm getting at. How are you complicating the lives of your children, which are tempting them to reach out to social media, to go onto these platforms uh, to look for any kind of answer or escape or help because their family in part, the marriage in part, is pushing them away. There are so many teens that are just marking the days, marking the calendar until they can get away from their parents and get out of the home so they can do life uh, on their own terms differently from what they have experienced within their family. And so question number one, what is the status of your marriage and family? And if your marriage is not in a good place and if your family is continuing to fracture and splinter, I would make my strongest appeals for you to find help. Question number two, who is influencing your child? If you have given your child a rectangular piece of glass, who then they have a mentor. 
They have many mentors. They, they are on the social media platforms. That device is not a neutral device. It is an active device that is alluring young hearts that are easily tempted. Who are the mentors in your child's family? It, again, if they are on the computer, which they probably are, if they have a device, which they may be, the average age at this point where a child gets a, a, gets a phone is eight years of age. And that is a phenomenal, that's just a staggering statistic that uh, we're giving our children phones at that age when they do not have self-control and they are easily tempted and they haven't fully formed their ideas and they don't really know who God is in an in-depth way. And we've created this hurdle in their lives and we created this, this added noise in their lives that they don't need at this time. The question is, who is influencing your child. And then if your child is struggling, do you see this just as the child's problem? That is, if you do, that would be a mistake that you really do not want to make. To blame a child for the, to blame a child exclusively for the decisions that they have made without addressing your own uh, marital or parental culpability, uh, that would be a problem because you will further alienate your child as though you're innocent completely. I am not placing your child's problems exclusively uh, on you and saying it's all your fault, not at all. Uh, the choices that a child makes are their choices, and they're responsible for their, their choices. But what I'm asking here, how are you complicating the situation because of marital or familial or parental uh, dysfunction? It would, be, it would not be wise uh, to address the speck only without addressing the log that is in your eye. Question number four, what specific way will you encourage your child in their biological identity? Boys want to be men, girls want to be women, and we want to encourage them in the historical and traditional ways that we encourage uh, boys to be men and girls to be women. For example, it is okay to be a stay-at-home mom. There's nothing negative about being a stay-at-home mom. Uh, perhaps that's not the calling on your child, on your girl's life. That's fine. Uh, you don't have to be a stay-at-home mom, but if that is a choice that your child is making, you definitely want to encourage that. Uh, when my old, our oldest daughter uh, began to think about her career path, I, I laid out three possibilities for her that you can uh, be a stay-at-home mom, or you can work in the workplace, or you can be a hybrid uh, where you are a mom and you also work uh, in the workplace. None of those have to be wrong, but what we wanted to do and we've always tried to do is encourage our girls to be girls and encourage our son uh, to be a man, and we want to encourage them in their identity. And so the question is, what specific ways are you encouraging uh, your children in their biological identity. The girls are girls, the boys are boys, and you want to encourage them that way. Uh, one of the best quotes that I heard from Abigail Schreier is when she said, girls are not defective boys. And there is a passion, really. Uh, there is a, a rabid desire in our culture to bring an equality to girls and boys that you can't be. You can't have that kind of equality 
they're girls and boys are different, and no matter how you try to uh, make it uh, where uh, everything is absolutely equal, it's just you know it's it's asinine, uh, but but it's also just it's impossible. You can't do it, and there's no need to it. No need to do it. Uh, we're all equal. Uh, in God's mind, as far as image of God is concerned, there is no person better than any other individual. But that's where people uh, get confused and even frustrated, uh, that we can all be equal uh, before God in our uniqueness. Uh, There is absolutely no way that you can uh, make everybody the same, which is what they're trying to do and, and the more they do it, the more frustrated they will become and the more divisive it will make uh, everyone. And, and the best approach to have is to uh, let girls know that they are equal uh, to boys as far as being made in the image of God, but they have a unique quality about them and they want to, uh, they want to uh, intensify and to grow in the uniqueness that God has made them. And you will find that even between girls and girls. Uh, Girls are made, all girls are equal in the image of God, in the mind of God, but yet each one of them have different giftings, therefore they're going to be different. And so girls will be different from girls, and girls will be different from boys, and boys will be different from boys, and there shouldn't be anything wrong with that. But unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, there is. We're just not happy, happy people. Now, when your child says that she's in the wrong body, or your son says that he's in the wrong body, my appeal to you is not to overreact. Uh, I think the first temptation would be to overreact, and again, we would be complicating the problem. There'll be two ways to complicate the problem. One I mentioned is that if our marriages aren't what they should be, our parenting is not what they should be. Uh, we can complicate our children's lives. And then if we overreact when they uh, say that they're born in the wrong body, that can further complicate and alienate. And you don't want to do that. And so you want to abide by what James was teaching us, that we are uh, slow to speak and quick to listen. And you want to enter into the dynamics of this child's life and see what is going on, who is influencing scene. Why is the insecurity at this level? Uh, How can we walk them through this rather than overreacting to the problem? And then if you aren't uh, educating yourself in these culture wars, then will you? Will you educate yourself with what is going on in our culture? Uh, it's, it's no longer acceptable for Christians to sit on the sidelines and, and let the people of the world uh, run the world. I am not suggesting that we should have a theocracy. Uh, I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that we should be salt and light. And if we're not being salt and light as we go along here, we're going to get to the place to where it's going to be virtually impossible to be salt and light because we're going to be legislated out of doing it, and we're going to have some very hard decisions that we're going to have to make because we've been so passive up to this point. 
And so I would appeal to you to begin to, if you're not already, that you educate yourself with what is going on around you culturally and then begin to speak into those things in redemptive ways. We do have solutions, and those solutions are in God's Word, and there's no reason for us to hold back. We could do this in a kind and gentle way, but also in a courageous and competent way. And so the question is, will you educate yourself in the culture wars if you are not doing it already? And then under this slide here, the final question is, there are two questions, actually, there are antithetical questions. One is, do you self-censor? And then the second one is, do you speak out harshly? Those are the two extremes. Those are the two ditches. Do you self-censor? Now, many, many, many Christians are tempted this way. They don't want to speak out. You'll read this on Facebook uh, sometimes where a, pers- a person would write, I don't want to start an argument, but, and then there's, they share something that they're passionate about, but they began sharing by offering an apology because they're scared that there's going to be blowback, and there will be blowback. Any time that you speak from a biblical perspective into a culture that is hostile toward God, there will be blowback, and we have to understand that, that that is just the nature of the situation, and there's no way around that with some people. Uh, As Jesus taught us very clearly, not only are we to take up our cross, but as we take up our cross, our cross is going to divide people. It's going to divide husband from wife and parents from children and children from children. And this is the nature of uh, the Bible and what the Bible does. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It not only divides us internally, our souls, uh, but it also divides relationships as well. As Jesus said, who is my brother? Uh, Who are my brothers? Who is my mother? It's those who do the will of God. And when you begin to speak about the will of God, when it's explicitly clear, there will be some people who will be hostile towards you and what you have to say, and that will tempt you not to say anything, which goes back to my prior point, is that we cannot be passive in this matter. And then the second question here, the antithetical uh, couplet here is, do you speak out harshly? And unfortunately, we're guilty at this point as well. Many of us are guilty for self-censoring, and many of us are guilty for speaking out in adversarial, hostile tones that were harsh when we don't have to be. You can be uh, gentle, uh, and you can also be courageous in how you communicate. And some people will take Jesus turning over the tables as their um, affirmation and their marching orders for how they communicate. And that is a, in most cases, that is a lack of, of self-awareness as they try to fold their comments into self-righteous anger. And perhaps it would be helpful if you uh, ask other people who have listened to you or read your social media streams, uh, do they perceive that as being uh, self-righteous or do they perceive that as being harsh? By the way, if you are self-righteous, you will be, I'm sorry, righteous anger is what I mean. If you do have righteous anger, 
then you'll also have humility. And if you have humility, you will be willing to present what you say uh, about others or to others. You will be willing to present that uh, to a few close friends uh, to get their perspective on how you communicate online or how you communicate in other contexts. The question is, do you speak harshly? There are two things that we cannot do. We cannot self-censor. We cannot be quiet. And we also cannot speak out in a hostile way. Now, I'm going to wrap up with one more slide here, and I want to get even more personal because, honestly, we're just at that place, and I don't want to hold back as I do this webinar. I want to be as clear as I possibly can, and so I want to just make some suggestions, and some of these may be uh, really difficult for some of you, and I do understand, but we must go there because the problems are just that great in our society. I want to give you four final points, and then I will be done. Number one, be the parent. You have to be the parent. Uh, you, you, you can't operate a child-centered home. You can't be like the affirmative care therapist where the child says that I want an iPhone or the child says I'm in the wrong body or the child says whatever the child says and you just affirm it where they come to you with the conclusion and you affirm the conclusion uh, without doing investigation without having a conversation without being the parent and doing the courageous thing point number one be the parent point number two don't give them a phone don't give them a phone now i realize that uh, there's a lot of peer pressure on children, fear a man, because everybody uh, has a phone. And then when the child comes uh, and asks for the phone, they want the phone, they beg for the phone, they plead for the, for the phone, they gaslight you uh, for the phone, they manipulate you for the phone, and you're not the parent. You're not going to be the parent, point number one. You'll end up giving them the phone. You can give them the phone uh, when they have exhibited to you a, a long-term habitual pattern of self-control. If your child has affirmed self-control over a long period of time, then maybe it would be the right time to give them a phone. If your child has proven that they can say no to temptation repeatedly, that their habituation is to say no to temptation, then you can give them a phone. But if your child doesn't habitually exercise self-control, or if your child doesn't habitually say no to temptation, then why in the world would you give them an access point to the world? to the culture where, there's so, where those social evangelists are out there uh, waiting for your child to show up through the device in which you have given them. Point number three, uh, consider not sharing their lives on the internet. You can unwittingly create a culture of social media, a, a social media expectation. Uh, by putting your children's lives all over uh, Facebook, e even in the funny uh, videos or the funny photographs that you show of your children, that you put it out there on the net. When you do that, 
you're actually creating a philosophy, you're creating an expectation, you're creating an allurement in the hearts of your children when you post them uh, on the internet. This is no different, I mean, it is different, but it's similar to the idea, you know, you show your child a, a photograph that you're taken, that you have taken of, let's say you've taken a family shot, a photograph, and you put it in their hand, and they look at that photograph, what are they going to look at first? They're going to look at themselves. They want to see themselves in the photograph, and then they will judge themselves for how they see themselves in the photograph. They'll see if their eyes are closed, eyes are open, and facial expressions that they made. They love. We love seeing ourselves that way. That's what we do with photographs. And when you put them on the Internet where you're, you're just intensifying the situation, you're creating an expectation and, and an allurement. And so my appeal to you here is that you would consider not sharing your children's lives, not, not either creating the problem in their souls or perpetuating the problem uh, by putting their lives on the Internet. And then finally, point number four, perhaps you need to make bigger changes in their lives. It may come to this. I'm talking about changing schools, changing churches, changing jobs, and changing homes, maybe even leaving the state. I was talking to someone recently who is making that decision. They're leaving the state because they live in a state that they can just no longer just live under the legislative pressure of being in this state, so they're making radical moves. That's what I'm talking about under this final point. There may be some moves that are radical that you will have to make uh, it could be that you will have to pull your children out of school and start homeschooling or finding another school system like charter schools uh, that don't legislate morality for your children because you don't want them to be indoctrinated. So be the parent. Don't give them a phone. Consider don't sharing their lives on the net, and perhaps you need to make bigger changes with school, church, job, or home. The big idea in this webinar is transgenderism is part of a cultural and political avalanche in our country. This contagion coincides with social justice, identity politics, wokeness, intersectionality, racism, and more. In this webinar, I hope that I have broken down some of the salient elements of the trans issue, and I trust that I've offered some practical help to engage our culture from a biblical worldview and hope-filled solutions. Thank you so much for listening to this webinar, and if you're still with me at this juncture, please understand that these webinars and all of our content that we uh, create for you are created and provided to you freely. They are underwritten by those who support our ministry. If you can support our ministry for as little as $5 a month or $50 a year or a one-time donation or, or anything else, would you please consider that? If you have any questions about that, please contact our office. It is our joy to give these resources away, and we do thank God for each, each person that he moves to support our ministry because it helps us to do more and to reach more lives with the practical message of Jesus Christ. This webinar has been called Transgenderism, I Think, Therefore, I Am. Thank you so much for watching. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.